Hello, and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Ben Vogley, and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today, I'm joined by Professor Russell Muirhead, the interim director of the Rockefeller Center and the chair of Dartmouth's Department of Government. His newest book is A Lot of People Are Saying, The New Conspiracism in the Assault on Democracy. Professor Muirhead, thanks for joining us today. So happy to be here. How are you doing, Ben? I'm excellent. How are you? Very good. Thank you. So a key point of your book is that conspiracists are now propagating something that you call conspiracy without the theory. Could you explain what this is and how you first began to notice it? Yeah. Nancy Rosenblum, my co-author, and I um, were trying to make sense of um, a number of the kind of conspiratorial, I don't know, notions or talk or allegations that, that were you know, beginning to envelop American politics. This was even before the the election of 2016. And uh, for instance, we were, you know, looking into the conspiracy called Jade Helm, which which involved an idea that the United States military was planning to invade um, invade the state of Texas and declare martial law and collect everybody's guns. And um, and and what we came to see was that um, although conspiracy theory, you know, is a category that we that we bring to understanding conspiratorial talk, uh, more and more stuff that we were looking at had no theory at all. There was no effort to collect, you know, evidence. There was no effort to explain things. There was no effort to reveal hidden patterns. There was no effort to hold authorities to account, as you often see in classic conspiracy theories. And, you know, the classic, I mean, not the classic, the great example of conspiracy without the theory to our eyes was Pizzagate, which said that, Mm -hmm. you know, Hillary Clinton and John Podesta, her campaign, um, her campaign chairman, I think, were together engaged in a child, running a child sex trafficking ring out of the basement of a pizzeria in 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 washington dc an utterly preposterous story um and and yet believed by at least the one person who went there with an assault rifle to investigate it um and and you know we look at something like that there's not a speck of evidence it doesn't start with something in the world that's hard to understand it doesn't reveal a hidden pattern it doesn't try to make sense of the world in any way and um and, and, you know, what we came to just, we looked at each other and said, we're, we see a conspiracy, but we don't see a theory. And, and more and more, that's, that's what we saw in contemporary politics, um, especially the kinds of conspiratorial charges that just satisfy themselves with a one-word summary, like, you know, rigged, exclamation mm-hmm. point, rigged, the election is rigged. There's no theory there. There's no story. There's no explanation. There's no data. There's no evidence. There's no pattern. It's just a free-floating charge. And, and I think that bare assertion, you know, when a, when a conspiratorial um, charge just takes the form of bare assertion, what you're saying is conspiracy without the theory. So I guess you could say Nancy and I were just kind of looking at the world, trying to make sense of it, and, and, um, and trying to describe, you know, what we saw. Um, and and, and this, is, this is what we see, I guess, is the way to say it. And do you find that this conspiracism is a global phenomenon or one that's specific to the United States? There are. I mean, I think it's a it's a tool 
that authoritarians are using around the world. I think um, the Russian state is expert at disseminating conspiracies without the theory, even in, our, you know, in the United States, for the, for the purpose of advancing Russian interests. Um, yeah. I, I think Soto and the Philippines does this. I think even the Chinese government can do it. So it's a tool that, that authoritarians use. It's not restricted to the United States. With respect to democracies, I mean, I, my, a friend of mine who, I, I'm not an expert in every, you know, polity around the world, a friend of mine who researches um, uh, populist movements in, in Europe says that you can see, you can find a lot of this there too. It's interesting that you bring up how conspiracism is being used by authoritarian regimes to, in some ways, legitimate their authority because, you know, as you described in your lecture, in the context of American politics, it's often used to totally delegitimate the government. Is there, how do you explain, you know, how these authoritarian regimes are using conspiracism while at the same time, conspiracism is being used to undermine American democracy? It's, I guess it promotes government legitimacy and undermines it simultaneously. Right. So, so what it's doing actually is, um, it's draining um, citizens of their agency, and uh, it's it's rendering them more powerless than they would otherwise be. And so that's how it can both delegitimate a democracy uh, in the United States, but also empower a non-democratic government, um, in, in, you know, elsewhere, say in in Russia, and. Um, mm -hmm. The scholar I mentioned in the talk, in the Rocky talk, Peter uh, Pomerantsev, whose, whose recent book is called This is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality, um, you know, he argues that this is a, a very conscious tool. It, it, this, this tool is used very consciously by authoritarian rulers around the world, and that, it, it, that it's used to kind of envelop people in this, in this fog of bewildering conspiracy charges and counter charges, getting them, getting them to the point where they don't really know what to believe. Once people don't know what to believe, they can't act because they can't really describe the reality that they inhabit with any confidence. So once you've rendered people uh, incapable of action, you've made yourself as an authoritarian ruler that much more secure. But you've also, if you, you know, if this happens in the context of a democracy, delegitimated or, or weakened democratic institutions. The delegitimation that we're really concerned about in the United States has to do with uh, the attack on the idea of a legitimate opposition, fundamental mm -hmm. to democracy, and, um, and also with the attack on, on expertise, on all forms of expertise in government. Because all, you know, the, in order to serve popular purposes effectively, a government needs to recruit experts. Maybe just to measure unemployment. It's hard to fight unemployment if you don't, if you can't measure it. Um, and we measure it by hiring lots of economists and uh, filling the Department of the Treasury with about a hundred thousand of them. And um, and and they they tried to you know both to, they tried to, in the first place to just describe economic things so that government can respond to them intelligently. You know um, the the conspiratorial charge of 2016 was that the Treasury Department was systematically understating the unemployment rate in order to make Barack Obama look better. 
And, and so this is the kind of conspiratorial charge that drains the authority from the experts who staff an agency, a department like the Treasury Department, and renders citizens that much less ready to believe anything that they hear about economic yeah. facts. And, and that makes it very, very hard for a democratic government to behave, to, to act effectively. Ugh, that's so difficult. Let's fast forward to the present day. What are What is the current coronavirus crisis telling you about all of this conspiracism? I mean, it's really an amazing thing that the, the first, what we're seeing is a kind of just almost daily proliferation of, of theories. Some of them have to do with treatments, um, allegations that there are effective treatments, but they're being withheld from people by the government. Again, you might say, like, why would a government do that? <laughs> if you just ask a few basic questions, you might start to lose, um, you know, to, to lower the, the confidence you would have in such a theory. But, but we've seen people literally kill themselves by, by taking products um, that are, in fact, quite lethal in the belief that they'd be effective because that's something they they read. Um, we've seen all sorts of conspiracy charges about which countries propagated it, some coming from the Iranian government, some from the Chinese government. There have been allegations that the Russian government has been propagating conspiracy theories uh, about the origin of the coronavirus. Um, and you've seen it coming from American public officials like Tom Cotton, who you know very, very coyly suggests while he doesn't suggest suggests while he, you know, he pretends not to suggest that the, the coronavirus comes from, um, from China. And listen, here's the fundamental thing, Ben, at work. You want to know the fundamental thing at work? This is it. Mm -hmm. Political people, what it means to be a, a, a political people. By a political person, I don't mean someone who's just kind of interested in politics, a citizen who cares about the common good, who stays informed, who wants to make a difference, wants to contribute. Uh, what I mean by a political person is somebody who really wants power, somebody who's, who, who aspires to, to get power and keep it. So let's call, let's define that as a political person. And, and those are the people who maybe are more likely to run for office or somehow get into the fray to try to get power. Yeah. And political people always find reality frustrating because um, it gets in the way of satisfying their own desire for power. Reality presents them with obstacles, with bad facts, with, with facts that make it harder for them to get, their, get power and keep it. And so political people always want to claim the power to reshape reality, in a sense to obliterate reality. To, to overwhelm the power of truth. And, um, and, and so this is a, just a standing effort that, that you can see over the millennia in politics. And, and so what we see are political powers making stuff up in, a, in an interest to keep power. Iran makes stuff up about the origin of the coronavirus in an effort to strengthen the Iranian regime. Tom Cotton makes stuff up in an effort to strengthen the Trump administration. Trump makes stuff up in an effort to increase his probability of re-election. The Chinese regime might make stuff up in an effort to strengthen itself. So all these power you know, seekers, power holders, use this tool 
to try to benefit themselves. But the, what they end up doing is distorting reality in, in the worst cases so effectively that it becomes very hard to know what to think. Yeah, that's a good explanation. And you're right that this is very much about human nature, but what's making this so bad right now? You know, it, it's, I, I think that, that the big shift, um, and then listen, there are going to be a lot of causes um, driving this in the moment. I, I think, you know, one, one cause in the United States, just with respect to um, U.S. politics, is that a, a conspiracist has moved into the White House. Um, the, the last time this happened was when Richard Nixon was president. He, he understood the world in conspiratorial terms also. And he looked around, saw conspiracies everywhere to disempower him, to defeat him. Um, well, Trump is the same way. And, and, and so that's changed things. So that, that moves, you know, conspiracism from the, from the periphery right into the center of government. The other thing is the revolution in communications technology. So, do you know Alex Jones? He was a—he's a kind of conspiracy entrepreneur who, believe it or not, oh, yeah. was dis—yeah, disempowered. Uh, by the way, when we started researching this book, you know, we were all into Alex Jones. We were following him, reading about him, watching him, and <laughs> and no one knew who he was when we were first writing about him. Um, he was really uh, outside mm -hmm. of Texas where nobody really knew who he was. And Alex Jones was able to, I mean, he then, what brought him down was the conspiratorial allegation that the shooting of school children in Newtown, Connecticut was faked. And those children who were, led, who were actually killed were, were in fact actors faking the whole thing. And, and that, finally, um, you know, caused him to lose cases in court, and it caused some of his platforms, like YouTube, to ban him. Well, listen, Alex Jones got so powerful because he was able to transmit um, his radio show and his TV show via mediums like YouTube. He didn't have to get on broadcast television. Now, when I was a kid, there were three networks plus public broadcasting service, maybe four networks. If you wanted to get on TV, you had to get past the producer. Mm -hmm. And there was only so much airtime in a given day. There's 24 hours of it. Every minute of it was super valuable. And so you weren't going to get on TV unless you could convince a producer that what you're doing was worthy. And because they used the public airways, they had a commitment that they had a sort of kind of public purpose. They had to answer to the FTC. So producers would never put somebody on like Alex Jones. They wouldn't put them on the radio. They wouldn't put them on TV. Yeah. <laughs> but today, you can broadcast yourself to everybody. You don't have to get past a producer or an editor. Um, and, and that's you know, much more democratic, but it allows everything to get out and find its audience. Do you think that YouTube's decision to take Alex Jones off the air was the correct one? Is that a model for how we should be dealing with this new conspiracism going forward? It's a great question. It's such a great question, Ben. And, you know, I don't know the answer. But, but, you know, what used to happen was that there were gatekeepers. Um, those producers and editors who I just mentioned, they decided what got on the air, what made it into the newspaper. And the reason you needed them was because every column mentioned in the newspaper was super valuable. There wasn't an infinite supply. The newspaper only had so many pages. And it cost a lot to print it and distribute it. So 
So there were only so many pages to deal with, and the you know editors had to figure mm-hmm. out what made it in, what didn't make it in. They were gatekeepers, and one of the standards they used a number of different standards, what's of interest to people, and so forth. And one of the standards they used was, is it true? Is there good reason to believe it? Yeah. Is this well sourced? Is does it have an evidentiary basis? Even today, I can report as somebody who publishes you know academic articles and and even the odd sort of piece in like the Atlantic Monthly or something. You know, when I write for the Atlantic Monthly, when I write for even Descent Magazine, an editor comes back and makes me justify and provide evidence for every single assertion in the piece. Yeah. Um, you can, the New Yorker is famous for this. So now we have a, you know, an information ecosystem with no gatekeepers. And, and that, you know, does raise the question, would it be possible to somehow reconstruct the gatekeeping function? And I think that the answer is that, that there's just too much on Twitter. There's too much. It, for, for it to really function this way. So listen, Twitter, um, Twitter's been taking down posts about coronavirus that are fundamentally fraudulent and inaccurate. They're exercising a very light gatekeeping function. Facebook is, in a way, I think, just refusing to do any gatekeeping because it doesn't care about democracy as much as it cares about addicting kids to their screens. But, um, you know, I guess I, I, I think it's, I can't tell you that I know it's the right answer, but I think it's an answer we should really take seriously and, and, and consider. And maybe there's a way to recreate some kind of gatekeeping function, um, even if it's not exactly like the old one. So as a final question, um, are you hopeful that we can solve this problem? And ultimately, as we've already sort of discussed, I feel like there is sort of this tension between having a very open society with, you know, total freedom of speech and total freedom to put any opinion you have out there, and then also having a society that's capable of clamping down on this kind of misinformation and conspiracism that you're talking about. I mean, do you think that we can solve this problem while still preserving those kind of core democratic values that we've had for centuries? Well, I, it's fair to say I am worried. That's why Nancy and I wrote this book. We really are. We really are worried. And 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 look, all along the way, and we were as we were writing the book, we'd stop ourselves and ask ourselves, you know, are we exaggerating the, the threat here? Are we convincing? Our, you know, and we would. And and you know, the more I see, the more I think there's real good reason to be worried about the future of democracy in a way that I wasn't ever worried about um, through most of my life, most of my adult life. Mm-hmm. So. So, so that's a little bit different. I'm worried, but you asked whether I'm hopeful. And and I'm also extremely hopeful. I'm hopeful that 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 the common sense of citizens listen, democracy can never work unless citizens have common sense. And common sense is the kind of thing that uh, equips citizens to to understand what kinds of ideas to put their epistemic confidence in and what kinds of ideas to withhold their confidence from. And and without common sense, like it doesn't work. Thomas Paine could probably, you know, without him, I don't know if we would have had an American Revolution. The, the pamphlet that 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 gave people the courage to embrace the revolution was, of course, titled "Common Sense." So, you know, if if common sense ultimately isn't up to answering this challenge, then democracy won't last. But I do have a great deal of hope um, for it. And and at the same time, we're going to need more than just blind faith and common sense. Um, I, I think in my lifetime, I think we're going to need to fundamentally reform democratic institutions and put them into a shape 
that causes citizens to believe in them in large numbers on the right, on the left, in the center. And, and this is what we did in the early decades of the 20th century. So what I'd say right now, we also have to be doing is just building up lots of good ideas for reforming lots of different things. And it won't shock me at all if we enter a moment of reform in which all kinds of things that were long thought impossible suddenly become possible. For decades and decades, to give you an example, for decades and decades after the Civil War, it seemed impossible to pass um, a, you know, antitrust reform. And, um, and this is an early you know, thing, I think it's passed in 17, in, in 1890, after, you know, I shouldn't say decades and decades, for about 15 years, it seems impossible, then all of a sudden, 1890, it happens. Of course, it doesn't really get put into action until Teddy Roosevelt's president. So yep. suddenly it becomes possible to bust trust that for 25 years, it didn't seem possible to do. And, um, and that's just, you know, one item in the progressive agenda. So I think, you know, when it comes to all sorts of things, um, you know, from campaign finance to campaign speech um, to concrete pieces of legislation, I think we need to stack up reform ideas. Um, and, 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 I, and, and, and I think it's going to fall more than anything to your generation to, to put them into action. And, and I think if we do that, we can rehabilitate democracy for another generation, maybe much, much longer. All right. Well, thank you very much. And let's hope that my generation is up to the task and maybe that we elect another Teddy Roosevelt. Um, so thanks again to Professor Muirhead. I've greatly enjoyed our chat. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Howard. We hope you'll join us for our next episode, and if you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.